Hi, I'm Charles Christoph Carter. And I'm his mom, Ellen Carter. We'd like to welcome you to this week's episode of Serial Dreadfuls, your place to find original content covering everything from dark historical fiction to science fiction, horror, adventure, and the supernatural. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast provider of choice. Thank you. In our last episode, an off-duty and intoxicated Bill Bannister spotted Greg Vivian on a deserted road and pursued him into the woods with murder on his mind. It wasn't long, however, before the hunter became the prey. Was it really Greg Vivian who killed Bill Bannister, or was it someone else entirely? And now, without further ado, the next episode of Yard Work, written by Charles and Ellen Carter, narrated by Ellen Carter. Listener discretion is advised. The Tamarack Motel and Cabins was situated at the edge of Grover's Notch, providing not only a visible landmark for the town's southernmost boundary, but a geographical marker that indicated the end of Coos County and the beginning of Braintree County. The Tamarack Motel wasn't luxurious. It wasn't even average. It was just a long brown building containing 15 rooms. The owner was of French-Canadian heritage, and even though the rooms had only the basic furnishings, they were kept remarkably clean. There were six one-room cabins behind the low-lying building that were used by the people of Grover's Notch, Braintree Junction, and other nearby towns, some say for illicit rendezvous in the off-season, trying to keep their affairs away from prying eyes and the gossip of the surrounding towns. The occupants of these cabins parked in a lot behind the main building. These same cabins were rented out to out-of-staters during hunting season. Men who had been pent up in the city for ten and a half months, restrained by laws and mores to which they had become accustomed. Freed from their wives and families, their familiar surroundings, and drunk with liquor and a brief bout of camaraderie, these men would make it their business, after a long day in the woods, to pursue a different type of game. During the six weeks of hunting season, the sheriff and his deputies performed extra patrols of the Tamarack Motel. The Tamarack Motel marked the end of Doug Murray's patrol area, and based upon the urgent pressure building in his lower back right around his kidneys, it would soon become his port in the storm. Doug Murray had just taken his annual physical, and the doctor had found that his blood pressure was elevated. He had prescribed a diuretic and had told Doug to lower his salt intake. After a week of nagging from his wife, she had finally gotten him to take the medication today that the doctor had prescribed, one pill twice a day. He had taken the first pill at 10 that morning. His shift didn't start until 4 p.m. It was a good thing because he'd spent the first three hours running in and out of the bathroom. By the time he'd showered and put on his uniform, that urgent need to urinate had subsided. 
he figured that the urgency to urinate he'd initially felt was primarily due to the fact that he'd never taken a diuretic before. As his shift wore on, he felt more and more confident that he was in control of the situation. That was until he took the second pill half an hour ago. Now he had to go so badly that if he didn't find a bathroom soon, he felt as though he'd piss his pants and he'd have to swing by his house and change his uniform. He didn't want to have to relieve himself in some bushes by the side of the road. After all, he was a law officer and was expected to have some modicum of dignity. The situation he found himself in was all her fault. If she had just backed off and hadn't nagged him so much, he would have eventually gotten around to taking the medication, maybe on his day off. He knew the Tamarack Motel was coming up on his left. Hold on, Doug. You can make it. Think about something else. He remembered when he'd had his first sexual encounter. His friends had told him beforehand to think about something else, baseball, poker, anything but coming. It had worked for him then. He hoped it would work now. Fifty yards ahead of him, a red Volkswagen pulled out of a side road and into the lane directly in front of him and slowed down. He was a quarter of a mile away from the motel's parking lot. There was a string of headlights from the oncoming cars. Christ, can't this jerk go any faster? If my back teeth weren't floating, I'd pull the bastard over and give him a ticket. He saw the neon glow from the lights of the motel. Almost there, Doug boy. You can make it. Think baseball. Think baseball. Think baseball. What year did Mickey Mantle hit his first grand slam? The Volkswagen's turn signal indicator flashed on. No, damn it. Don't turn here, you fucking jerk shit. Hold on. Hold your focus, Doug. Come on. Think numbers. Numbers. You can do this. RBIs. RBIs. Doug bit his lip, concentrating as hard as he could, trying to hold back the deluge that he had pent up in his kidneys. The Volkswagen made the turn, and he pulled in right behind it. It continued around to the back of the motel. He thought he recognized it, but other matters were more pressing. He pulled his cruiser up in front of the motel, quickly unbuckled his seatbelt, and bolted through the front door of the lobby. Evening, he didn't wait to hear what came next. He yanked the door of the men's room open and slammed it behind him. He had his zipper down and his equipment out faster than a jackrabbit jumping out of a hole. Hell, he didn't even bother to lift the lid. He could deal with that later. He stood there, a warm feeling of relief radiating from his very core, the ache and pressure in his kidneys beginning to subside. He'd never pissed so much in his life. Just when he thought he was done, he realized he had another bucket full ready for release. Jesus, thank you, thank you, Linda. I'm going to cram those pills down your fucking throat and see how you like it, you bitch. He whispered to himself as he shook himself and zipped up. He looked down at the seat. It was a mess. He grabbed some toilet paper and dabbed at it. Ah, fuck it. He washed his hands, checked the front of his pants, and thought about how he must have looked when he came through the door. He took a deep breath, straightened his gun belt, and waited to make sure he didn't have to go again. When he was sure the urge had really passed, he opened the door and stepped out into the lobby in a professional manner. Good evening, officer. You are in quite a hurry, I see, the stranger behind the desk said with a smirk. Where's Marge? he asked, staring at the desk clerk. From what I understand, Marge eloped. Walter called me and asked if I could help him out until he finds out if she's coming back or not. Who are you? I'm Walter's cousin, Jean. Murray shook his head in disbelief. Damn, I just saw her last night. 
I thought she seemed awfully happy. I joked and asked her if she'd won the lottery. She laughed and told me she had in a way. She said things in her life were about to change for the better. I understand what she was talking about now. Well, good for her. The deputy heard the click of a door latch. He turned and looked over his shoulder, just in time to see a woman with honey-blonde hair slipping out the back door. He was only able to get a glimpse of her narrow waist, the curve of one hip, and the flash of a shapely lower thigh and calf. It was like an optical illusion that you see in an art book, an unconnected circle that your mind automatically completes. And yet it was even more basic than that, more primitive. It was that strong male instinct that allowed him to connect those pleasing curves and lines, to make sense of the circle. That or the fact that a red Volkswagen had pulled into the motel just before he did was enough to convince him that he'd seen those shapes somewhere before, that he thought he knew the woman they belonged to. He was curious. He turned back and glanced down at the open register on the desk. The name he was looking for wasn't there. Maybe he was wrong. Maybe it wasn't her. He walked to the back door and looked out. The soft glow from the sodium vapor lights didn't illuminate the entire parking lot. There were two lights at opposite ends of the lot. The one near the lot's far edge flickered on and off. Murray watched the shapely figure begin to climb the steps to the cabin, her outline disappearing into the shadows that fell beyond the soft glow of the intermittent light. The silhouette of her body was caught for a brief moment once again, under the stream of subdued yellow light from the security lamp attached to the right-hand corner of the cabin. She opened the door, and the light from inside the cabin fell across the cold, hard ground. The door quickly closed, swallowing up both the woman and the light emanating from within. He still couldn't be sure if it was who he thought it was. He looked toward the other end of the parking lot. There were four cars parked there. One was the red Volkswagen. He stepped out the back door of the motel office and walked across the gravel lot. He tried the door to the Volkswagen. It was unlocked. He opened the door and flipped down the sun visor. The registration was in a plastic sleeve attached to the visor. It was her car. But was it her he had seen? He flipped the visor back up and closed the door. He started to walk back toward the office and then turned to take one last look at the cabin she'd entered. He wondered why she was there and if she was meeting someone. He returned to the motel office. The night clerk glanced up. The woman who was just in here went into cabin four. Could you tell me who's rented that cabin? Sure. Now let me see, the clerk said as he ran his finger down the list of names on the registry. Oh, here it is. Says here that his name is Charles Mudgett. Charles Mudgett? The clerk shrugged his shoulders. That's the name he used. Did you get a look at his face? His face? The clerk thought for a moment. Normally, I'm not very good at describing faces, but I can tell you that there was one thing that struck me about his. It was that bright red hair on his face. He needed a shave real bad, and those piercing blue eyes of his were pretty intense. They seemed to look right through you. I can tell you right out that he's not someone I'd want to tangle with. What was he wearing? Camouflage, the clerk replied. Doug Murray felt a shiver go down his back. The man the clerk had just described could be Greg Vivian. Doug Murray walked outside to his cruiser. She's in there with Greg Vivian? A shot of adrenaline rushed through him. 
Doug Murray opened the front door and took the mic from its cradle. He called Ronnie Boucher back at the dispatcher's desk. Doug's voice was lower than normal, almost a husky whisper with an edgy urgency to it. Tell the sheriff I think Greg Vivian is at the Tamarack Motel and Cabins, and I need backup. He's with a woman. I think she saw me. If she did, he knows I'm here, and he might try to run. I'll contact the sheriff, Doug, but I'm sending Maynard now. Don't do anything until he gets there. Doug Murray quietly shut the door to his cruiser and slipped along the side of the motel. Moving toward the back parking lot, he hoped that he would be less likely to be seen approaching the cabin from this vantage point than if he'd walked out the back door of the motel. He pulled his weapon from its holster and continued walking toward the cabin. He kept his eye on the light coming from the curtained window. He was trying to remember if the cabin had more than one door, more than one way out. He couldn't afford to go back to the office to ask the clerk. If Vivian was in there, he might get away. Doug had no choice. If he wanted to keep Vivian from fleeing, he'd have to try and take him now or at least make him think he was cornered until backup arrived. He crouched down as he started up the slope toward the cabin. She watched as Greg Vivian carefully, quietly lifted the window sash on the back wall of the cabin. Never mind, he whispered. I shouldn't have asked you for your help. It's not fair to pull you into this ship. Thanks for coming. Now get the hell out of here before old numbnuts comes creeping around. Go on, get. She bit her lip. Take care of yourself, Greg. Yeah, fat chance. The deck is stacked against me. Go on now, he said, his voice just a little less bitter than it was a moment before. Get out of here. She carefully opened the cabin door and closed it gingerly behind her. Doug made it as far as the tamarack tree just in front of the cabin before he saw the curtain inside the cabin move. He couldn't see who it was at the window. He didn't know if it was Vivian or the woman. If he could get to the back of the cabin, he'd be able to cut off Vivian's first avenue of escape. The night was still, eerily so. Doug's heart was beating rapidly against his chest. His mouth was dry. Adrenaline was pumping through his body. He could hear himself breathing as he reached the back wall of the cabin. He glanced around, wondering if somehow Vivian had been able to make it out of the cabin without being seen. He had just rounded the back of the cabin when he felt a sudden sharp pain rush through his body. He felt an expulsion of the air, and a cry was caught in his throat. He doubled over, and both hands went to his groin. He tried to hold on to the gun, but a hand grabbed it, violently twisting his right wrist making him relinquish it. He staggered backwards, the excruciating pain making his vision blurry. He looked up and saw the camouflaged figure moving aggressively toward him. He felt the blow and heard the crack of contact as the figure's fist connected with the side of his jaw. The hard, cold ground smacked him in his face as his body rushed to meet it. A gasp, a heavy smack, and then a muffled thud briefly resounded somewhere at the back of the cabin. And then silence fell, an eerie silence. She didn't dare look back. She didn't want to know what had just happened. If anyone were to ask her, she could honestly say, I don't know what happened. All she had to do is make it out onto Route 3 and head south to Lancaster, head over to the all-night pharmacy, get some aspirin, anything, as long as she got a receipt to prove that she was there, there and not here. 
She maneuvered the car out of the parking lot and quickly turned left onto Route 3. As soon as she made the turn, she accelerated briefly until she reached the long curve that snaked around the mountain, its trees standing like naked, silent sentinels in the chilling night as she left Grover's Notch behind her. He lay in a fetal position, both hands between his legs, ready for what might come next, only vaguely aware of what was going on around him. He could sense another blow coming. He steeled himself for the impact, but it never came. He fought unsuccessfully to keep from passing out. The last thing he glimpsed before losing consciousness was the figure slipping into the woods. He didn't know how much time had passed when he felt someone shaking him and heard Maynard's voice calling his name. Doug! Doug! Doug opened his eyes. Maynard helped Doug slowly to his feet. Joe Martin stood in front of the two deputies. Looking up at the sheriff, still doubled over in pain, and in a halting voice he said, I'm sorry, sheriff. I tried to stop him, but he jumped me and kicked me in my nuts. Damn it, Joe swore. The anger and frustration were evident on his face. That's the second time today we had him and lost him. Jared nudged Joe and motioned with his head toward Doug's empty holster. Doug, where's your weapon? Joe asked. My weapon? Doug said, his voice as shaky as his legs. God damn it, Joe swore again. Maybe Doug just dropped it, Sheriff, Maynard said as he supported Doug with one arm and used his flashlight to quickly scan the surrounding area with his free hand. But there was no weapon. Ah, geez, Sheriff, I screwed up. He must have taken it after he hit me in my jaw. Joe turned and looked at the dark woods. He shook his head. You did just fine under the circumstances, Doug. Hell, eight of us lost him earlier today. Are you going to need a doctor? I don't know, Doug moaned. Maynard, take him over to the cruiser and sit him down. Call the EMS unit. Then come back here and search the area around the cabin. Maybe he just dropped it. But I want to know one way or the other, Joe said. Doug, is the woman you were talking about still in the cabin? Joe asked. Doug didn't offer any words. He just shrugged his shoulders. Joe took his deputy's gesture to mean that he didn't know. Do you know who she was? For a moment, the pain on Doug's face got worse, and then he replied, I'm not sure, Sheriff. It was dark, and I only saw her from the back. Joe nodded. Okay, Doug. Maynard, help him to the cruiser. Maynard angled the passenger's seat back in the cruiser and stepped back and out of the way. How are you doing, Doug? I'm doing all right, Doug replied, his voice slightly off register. It sounds like you're getting ready to audition for the Vienna Boys Choir, Maynard said with a straight face that almost immediately broke into a playful grin. Thanks, Maynard. I knew I could count on you to make me feel better. I'm giving it my best shot, Doug, old boy. Why don't you sit down here? EMS is on its way, Maynard said, helping Doug into the seat. I'm going back to look for your weapon. Doug leaned back against the headrest, closing his eyes and taking several deep breaths, one hand gently resting on his throbbing groin. He brought the other hand to his face, extended a finger, and gingerly probed his open mouth, checking several teeth to see if any had been loosened by the blow to his jaw. His unprofessional cursory examination netted one possible suspect. He removed his finger and gave an audible sigh. He tried to reconstruct what had led him to his unfortunate encounter. 
It had been his curiosity that had prompted him to check the red Volkswagen and verify the registration. It was her car, but he wasn't certain it was really her that he'd glimpsed in the motel office and then later watched as she walked toward the cabin. He never did see her face. Why would she be meeting Greg Vivian? It didn't make sense. He turned and looked at the parking lot. Three cars were still there, but the red Volkswagen was gone. Oh, fuck. He allowed himself to sink deeper into the seat and closed his eyes again as he waited for the EMS unit to arrive. He knew now he was going to have to tell the sheriff about the red Volkswagen. Jared followed Joe around to the front door of the cabin. Joe turned the knob and pushed the door slowly open. He and Jared stepped inside. Joe glanced around the small room. There was nothing unusual about it. It was a simple room. A double bed was placed against the wall to the left, a bureau positioned under the open window on the back wall. Two wooden chairs and a small table were placed against the wall to the right, and just beyond the table and chairs was a narrow doorway that led to a tiny, perfunctory bathroom. As Joe's eyes swept the room, something green lying on the floor next to the bureau caught his eye. He walked across the cabin floor. He didn't touch the green, hand-knit woolen glove. He squatted beside it to take a closer look. On the ribbed cuff of the glove was the embroidered letter G. He reached into his coat pocket and pulled out a plastic glove and an evidence bag. He slipped the plastic glove onto his right hand and gingerly lifted the green glove into the evidence bag. There was the sound of footsteps on the small cabin porch. Joe rose and turned just as Maynard's face appeared at the door. Sheriff, we've got a problem. What is it? Joe asked. And now a preview of our next episode. With Greg Vivian still on the loose, Joe and his deputies find what's left of Bill Bannister in the woods. Not long after, Joe finds out about the lies Bill told the town gossip. What effect will such a deathbed confession have on Joe, his investigation, and the town? Please consider joining our Patreon site and becoming a Dreadnought. For only $3 a month, our Dreadnoughts get early access to free episodes, exclusive periodic commentary by the authors of the books and the creators of the podcast, exclusive access to episodes of the second half of each book as those episodes are released, and access to the entire back catalog of episodes as our podcast goes forward. Click the link in the show description now to become a dreadnought and aid in the conversion of the uninitiated masses.